Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with David Barnett. He's a mentor, author, speaker, educator, seminar host, consultant, and he helps people buy and sell businesses. So, hey man, thank you for being on the show today, David. I I, I was telling you before uh, we hit the go live button, I've consumed your content for quite a while now. You've got a, a pretty extensive uh, collection of stuff out there and it's just something that helped me get into this industry. So I want to thank you first for being here. Oh, thanks, man. It's, it's you know, I, I've been putting that stuff out for a really long time. I think I started my YouTube channel back in 2014. And um, the whole point and purpose of, uh, of the channel um, really is just to spread information um, to help people avoid getting into trouble with, uh, with bad deals. I've I seen you got quite a few books out there. One that caught my eye is uh, we might we'll talk about this a little bit later in the show. But the twenty one stupid things people do when they're trying to buy a business. So uh, w- I'd like to hear a few of those when we get into it. But let's just start off kind of you know like I always joke around and tell people like well you know you were born and you wandered around the earth and somehow you ended up on my show. Could you fill out the gap in between? So what is your origin story? How did you get into this space? Uh, well, it, it's it's a great story. Um, you know, I, I think that most people are supposed to have some kind of like tragic story about how they ended up, you know, down in the dirt and then they, they recovered and they got a secret to share with everyone. And, um, you know, my, my story is that I was born to a, a young unwed mother and then I got adopted. So that's, that's how I solved my problem at a very young age. But as I, as I grew up in my, in my adopted family, which was really an idyllic and perfect childhood, really, um, I began to, it was never a secret that I was adopted. I began to realize just how different I was from my adopted parents. And so uh, my dad who raised me was an electrical engineer and had an engineer's mind and was always trying to figure out problems and how to fix things and, and very quiet, you know, kind of person. And, and, um, and my mom was a very stereotypical homemaker type of mom who would spend her time on, you know, at the house and made lunch for us every day when I was in school and come home for lunch kind of thing. And so it really was a great environment, but more and more I would see problems in the world and want to figure out how I could do things better and make money at it. And I, I remember my first real hero icon was uh, that uh, uh, on that TV show, uh, remember Michael P. Keating, is that his name? The, the, the young kid who was the, the capitalist there on uh, that, that sitcom, I forget the name of the sitcom. But um, I realized, yeah, I'm, I'm all about business. I want to be in business. And so um, when I finished university or finished high school, I went to university and I studied business, believing that getting a business degree would turn me into a businessman. And I was in there for about three years before I realized that what they really do there is they turn people into what I now call Fortune 500 bureaucrats, which are these middle management people in these big companies. You know, you, you start sitting through these classes where you're learning about case studies about whether or not GE should enter this, you know, uh, foreign market. And you realize, wow, this has really got nothing to do with what I'm interested in, which are all these businesses I see when I'm driving through, you know, a city. 
like the street level businesses, the, the tire service guy, the, you know, the, the hair salon or the, the company that makes something, a small factory or whatever. And so my real education, and while I was a kid, I had all these little you know, childhood businesses, cleaning snow off people's driveways and delivering newspapers and things like that. But when uh, I finished university, I had a real opportunity, and that was I, I went into sales with a Yellow Pages publisher. And this was a huge eye-opener because I actually got to sit down with and talk with the owners and managers of all of those businesses I just mentioned, the real-world businesses that you run into every day. And this was at the end of the 90s. And so Google was around, but if you typed plumber into Google, no matter where you were in the world, you'd get a plumber in California because they hadn't figured out how to localize search yet. And so those yellow pages were really important for those local businesses, because if you came home and there was a leaking pipe, you had to grab that book to find a plumber, not in California, but someone who could come over and fix your problem right away. And so that was where I really developed um, sort of a wide level of, uh, you know, that mild wide, mile wide, inch deep kind of expertise into all of these different kinds of businesses and learning what kinds of customers they wanted. And, and then I learned how I could help them get those customers, um, you know, either through Yellow Pages or uh, through doing other stuff. And this, there are all kinds of neat lessons I learned in those days um, about sales, about presentations, about empathy and understanding other people's points of view and, and what they want to get out of the transaction. And it was really interesting because I had some very good mentorship and leadership uh, in my years with Yellow Pages. I was there for seven years, ultimately. Um, and one of the things that I learned is that you don't go looking for a customer today. You want a customer for a decade. And the way that you do that is by providing value and providing good service and, and, and giving somebody what's actually going to help them. So I remember I would have someone who would buy a moving truck and want to put a full-page ad in the phone book, for example. And I would have to say to them, like, if I let you do that, number one, it's going to be very expensive. I'll earn a big commission. It'll be great for me, but you won't be able to handle the calls and it's going to damage your reputation and you need to grow into this. And so I would advise them to start off with something smaller. And so it was a great experience. I knew though that the days of the yellow pages were, were limited. Uh, Google was learning quickly how to fix the problems to become what it is today. And so I left yellow pages and I, got, I started a business with uh, a partner and we grew that business for about two years before I realized that my heart wasn't in it. And that's when I took a program to learn how to be a business finance consultant. And I started to help businesses grow through getting financing. So I was brokering um, equipment loans and leases. I was uh, brokering factoring facilities, which is the sale of accounts receivable, helping people get bank loans, lines of credit, that kind of thing. And that's where I started to meet people who were looking for money to buy existing businesses. And I, I very quickly realized that that market was underserved. Um, I was meet, meeting people who had these deals put together that were not put together very well by people who didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, people like real estate agents and sometimes even accountants or attorneys who, who had no experience in putting these kinds of deals together. And I saw people losing their deposits I saw people buying businesses without any concern or understanding of operating capital requirements. I saw people doing deals where they really didn't have a frame of reference or understanding of, of how to put the deal together and they were overvaluing the business that they were buying. And I was no expert at the time, but I saw that there was a gap 
And so I needed to make a change and I made the pivot into business brokerage. And I joined up with one of the big international franchise brands in that space. And the reason why I chose them was because they gave me access to education. And so I joined an office as a broker, went and got my certification from one of the big international uh, associations and started to you know, help people buy and sell businesses. And business brokerage is exciting and interesting and it's a terrible business. And, <laughs> um, it's entirely contingency driven. So people list a business for sale, you might charge them some kind of fee for preparing the business for sale. And then you get paid a commission when the business is sold. And sometimes it can take years to sell a business and you can spend a year working on a deal only to have it fall apart because of things entirely outside of your control or even that of the buyer itself. And so in my last year as an office owner, 2011, I'll, I'll tell you this story because it sums it up really well. At the end of August, 2011, I had six deals lined up for the fall. They were going to bring in a quarter million dollars of commission earnings. One deal fell apart because it was a franchise uh, business and the franchisor was a real jerk to the buyer. And the buyer said, I love this business, but I will not get into business with those guys. So that deal fell apart. Another business was in a regulated industry. So the buyer needed to obtain a license from a government agency and they wouldn't issue it. So I don't know why. It may be something in the buyer's background or I don't know. But that was another deal that fell apart. And then the third deal, the buyer obtained a finance letter from a bank who then later rescinded it. They said, yeah, you know what? We issued you that, uh, that finance letter, but uh, now we're being told by head office that we have too much exposure in that industry and we're not going to do it yet. And so that deal fell apart. So my, my six deals with a quarter million dollars of revenue turned into three deals with 110000 and that 110000 was enough for me to fill my, my holes like in, in my finances because people get into, into business brokerage because they see that business brokers charge 10 or 12% commission and they figure, wow, I'm going to sell a million-dollar business and earn a $100,000 check. What they don't appreciate is that you can spend 18 months working on that deal and how do you pay the bills, how do you eat? You end up using lines of credit and credit cards. And then when you sell the business, that money doesn't end up being a pile of cash or, or it doesn't become your Scrooge McDuck money pit money that you can go swimming in. It goes to the credit card company and the bank and line of credit. And so you, you work really hard on trying to do these deals. You end up in the red, you sell out business, and then you get back to black and, and you're afraid to spend the money because you don't know when the next check is going to arrive. And then you slowly creep back into debt. So I had an opportunity to leave the industry and I did. And, and I went and became a banker. And so it was over the course of the next two years, I started to build up this little side hustle. That's when I started to say, you know what? I could use some of my knowledge in other ways. That's when I wrote my first couple of books that are, that are on Amazon today. And, that, and then I started the YouTube channel around 2014, mostly to promote the books that I've written. And then the bank wanted to reorganize. And I realized, oh, they're probably gonna be offering packages. And by this time, the side hustle had grown into five figures of income every year. And I realized, hey, I could actually turn this into a full-time business again, um, but a very different business, one that's not related to getting the deals done, one that's simply me offering my expertise and guidance to people, helping them go through this journey. And that's what I did. So uh, the bank did offer me a package. 
I ended up on a continuance, which is simply they kept me on payroll and benefits for, for a few months uh, while I went and found another job. But instead, I used the time to build this business. And I wrote a couple more books, um, 21 Stupid Things being one of them, and set up some more websites and really worked on my online content. And I started to develop this clientele from all over the place of people who just wanted me to help them on their deal, whether they were buyers or sellers, and wanted you know, to invest a little bit of time and effort and money with me to avoid making the $100,000 mistake. And that's what I've always positioned myself as is, is kind of like insurance. You know, um, I've now worked on hundreds and hundreds of deals uh, going all the way back to 2008. I, I was a broker during the last great recession that we went through. Um, and I work with new people every week. And a lot of the times the extent of my work on the file is simply to go through things with people and then show them the things they don't see, which I see because I see them over and over again, and point out the hazards that they're not aware of. Now, uh, one of the things that I, I think you talk about all the time on your show is why would you start a, a buy a business instead of starting one? And we all point at the risk factors in starting a business and how if you buy a business, you already have the clientele and the systems and all that kind of stuff. But if you buy a business under the wrong circumstances, if you structure the deal incorrectly, you could end up buying a business with all the same risks of doing a startup. And, and most people are not aware of that, especially if they're new to the game, if they're just coming on the scene. And there's a big difference between someone who decides to buy a business, maybe to grow an existing business that they've got 15 years experience running. You know, that person has the lens of an experienced business operator that they're gonna be looking through versus someone who has always had a job somewhere and they've decided that they're going to enter the world of entrepreneurship through doing an acquisition. And not only are they new to buying a business, but they're also new to the operations, running, et cetera. And, and that's where there's a real experience gap that opens people up to making mistakes. Yeah, I got it. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot of things have changed in that you, you're talking about the yellow pages kind of caught, caught my eye was because I had an intern here, a guy found me online. He lived here in, in where I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he said, hey, I'd like to come up to the office to talk to you. And he wanted to figure this out. And uh, he just sold a, a boxing supply company. He was a boxer, a professional boxer. Then he owned a company that sold sporting boxing gear. And uh, he sold that and he was looking for his next venture. And uh, he he was he's like, I'm really good at cold calling. I want to do cold calling. I was like, well, I don't do cold calling, but you can. He goes, can you give me some leads? I said, absolutely. So I take a big yellow page as I stack it over on his desk. And he's like, why would you give me this? I said, because anybody that's still advertising in that has been in business for 10 to 15 years or more, and they're more likely to sell, right? It's kind of an antiquated product, but if they're still advertising in it, they've probably done it for the last 20 years. And that's a good place to start because he was looking for, you know, brick and mortar type stuff. You're just not going to find on LinkedIn as much, right? You know, I'm in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I own a few things. One of the things I own a pest control. There's 30 of those in this town at least. And four of them I can find on LinkedIn, right? So, yeah. but I can find them all in, in, in the yellow pages, right? So, uh, in, uh, you know, he was here for two or three weeks and made some calls and, uh, he's gone now. So I'm a, a suspecting, he told me he had something. We, I, I worked him through some of the conversations and then he hasn't been back. So I'm, I think, I think he got his hands on it. He's working now, but, uh, and that's, it was just one of those, he did a little bit of work for me and in exchange, I answered questions for him, 
But uh, nowadays, I, 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 you know, I still take the yellow pages when they drop them off at my door. But it's if I'm looking for something like I have a buddy here in town that's looking for auto service companies, I, I dig through that. And then, then I see if I can find them online and I can see a little bit more about them or whatever. But uh, it's pretty quick to take a look at who's been around the longest. A lot of them will do it just for you. It'll say in business for 21 years, right in their ad, right? I, so when when I was at Yellow Pages, one of the one of the amazing things about the organization, and I don't know if this is common everywhere, but for the publisher I worked with, they were very sales training intensive. So we had five or six weeks of training before we spoke to our first prospect, and then every year we had development days where we would learn more and more stuff. And one of the interesting things that we learned is that they have done research and studies and all kinds of things, but it's about buying habits. And so we learned when in a person's life they were more apt to use the yellow pages and it has to do with life events. So young person leaving home for the first time is all of a sudden has to suddenly get into the market for things they never bought before because their parents took care of it. So if you're selling today something that could be purchased by somebody whose buying habits were formed in that time, those moments in their life, and if those moments were pre-2000, you're probably talking about a market that is still using the yellow pages. So uh, I know someone who started a brand new maid service, and one of their target markets were this baby boomer demographic, these older people. And so this was a brand new business that put an ad in the yellow pages, and they told me it's driving 70% of their inquiries. And so, but it's because the users of the book fit that demographic, their buying habits were created beforehand. They're much more apt to reach for that book rather than open up their smartphone. Some of them don't even have smartphones, right? And, and so it's, who am I selling to? That Yellow Pages is going to be with us for a, a while longer, I think, but, but not forever. Yeah, I, uh, for one of my businesses, I ran ads last year. We got a couple calls off. Not what I expected. I really expected more from it because uh, I track, I gave it a different phone number for the print mm-hmm. version as I did for the uh, online. I got, you know, a decent number of appointments from their online uh, version of the yellow pages. But I think in the entire, and, and pest control is usually active anytime it's warm. So early spring, right, right now, uh, the guys are busy. I, I got four text messages this morning that they're out doing ant jobs, you know. Um, but, you know, during here in Oklahoma, anyway, about mid-November, when it starts cooling down, the business pretty much shuts down unless it's pretty much cockroaches and and and, uh, <laughs> and bed bugs in. But um, yeah, the I love the customers I do get out of it because they're usually uh, fifty-five plus. Uh, they're accustomed to paying their invoices when they get them, yeah. and my younger millennials are like, "Oh, just send it to me via email." Then I have to like you know, there's a there's a tag game that gets played. Uh, of getting that done right so oh i didn't see it like yeah you did like i I got a little (laughs) tracker and i could see you open the email right so you can't say that to them but yeah so yeah it is different if you've got i think if you i I think it's still valid um especially for very particular uh industries too um it needs like the if i was a real estate agent for certainly right especially if i if i cater to the higher end markets because you know here in tulsa like this number is going to sound low. So I told everybody where I live. I don't know if I've ever said that on the show. I'm in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And because I'm about to tell you that I can get a decent house here for 250 to 300 K yeah. where, where I'm about to move in two weeks from now, I'm moving to uh, Sonoma Valley, California. I can't get a shack for that there. Right. Like you can't, you couldn't get a condo there for 250, 300 K. Um, 
But if you're going above that here in Tulsa, it's chances are you're fair. Most likely you're, you're, you're either a doctor, a lawyer, or you're, you know, 55 plus and you're fairly established. So if I was a realtor and I wanted to target that, uh, that crowd, that demographic, absolutely uh, would have a big, huge display in there. Uh, the issue is your display is, you know, side by side with everybody else that it's a jockey of who, who can spend the most to have the best looking ad to where is on like, I guess it's the same. If you think about it, like technically, it's the same on uh, Google or anything like that. Because you're it's like gonna... paying for search terms, you know, using right. those, uh, the, the Google uh, keyword. Uh, you're, you're either jockeying through for position like you would inside of the the print media is like you paying for ads and trying to get a better spot, right? And then online, you're you're doing paid ads and like paying SEO people to try to get a better spot. So I guess the somat uh, the the method of doing it's changed, but the the necessity of uh, just being right there beside and buried within everybody else is still there. So let's jump in a little bit about, um, I just I keep catching my mind this 20, because uh, I'm out looking for buying businesses. I've taken a few courses from different people, but when I see something that says 21 stupid things people do when they're trying to buy a business, I want to make sure I'm not doing some stupid things. So give us some of those. What are some of the stupid things we do when we're out there looking for businesses? Well, you know, one of the things, like if you're out there looking for businesses to buy, then you might end up on one of these uh, websites where businesses are advertised for sale. Um, and you might end up talking with a broker, for example. And so what, one of the things that is in there is confusing uh, what's called seller's discretionary earnings with money in your pocket. Um, because when you start to get out there in this world, this SDE number, or, or there are other terms that mean essentially the same thing. It's it's the amount of money available to an owner operator that works full time in the business. But here's the problem is that it's not all money that ends up in your pocket because certain things have to come out of there. So the number one thing that has to come out of there is some money for you to live on. Um, so you have to take home a salary because this SDE number is uh, assuming you're going to work full time in the business. Um, the next thing is uh, any debt service. So if you borrow money to buy the business, you got to make the payments out of the SDE. Um, the one that people often forget about is getting some kind of return on the cash you put down. So if you if you put you know 30, 50, 100 grand of your own cash down as part of the acquisition deal, you need to get a rate of return on that money and you have to be able to pull that money out too. So that's in addition to your, let's call it the salary uh, and the debt service. And then there's two more, um, Uncle Sam. So that, that SDE number is always based on EBITDA, which is pre-tax. And so if you're going to be making money in the business, then you're going to have to pay tax. And depending on your legal entity structure, et cetera, you're going to be able to figure out what that tax bill is, right? So you got to pay tax. And then the other one that is kind of sneaky, where people deceive themselves a lot, is that last two letters of EBITDA, DA, depreciation and amortization. So depreciation and amortization are how accountants recognize things wearing out. So if you buy a truck, um, it's a lot of money. Uh, it's not an expense in the year that you buy it. You depreciate it over time. And this ends up being called depreciation or amortization, depending on what it is. Now, under the tax code, the government lets you do accelerated depreciation. And this is, it's an incentive to get the economy humming. And so because of that, what you find in someone's statements being the depreciation often doesn't relate in any way to the actual wearing out of stuff. And But what the point I want to get across is out of that SDE number, you have to create an allowance for replacing things, uh, whether that's 
the idea that you're going to outright buy something every couple of years, or you're going to take a payment out to maybe make a lease payment on something new, a new delivery truck for a business. Um, it really depends on the type of business and people will get into trouble looking at the SDE when they start to look at capital intensive businesses. So people will see a business that has a lot of big equipment, trucks, buses, what have you. They'll look at the SDE number. They'll offer a multiple of SDE and think that they're getting a good deal. And then they need to like replace one of those big pieces of equipment and very quickly realize this comes out of the SDE number. So it's, it's not true cash flow. So that that's one of the biggest ones. I think one of the problems is people who go out and do this are not looking for big enough businesses. I think they can acquire something much bigger than um, maybe even outside of their comfort zone. There's a, um, I have a good friend who I'm helping do this right now. And he's like, well, I've got this amount down. Uh, let's just go buy something uh, and, you know, let's hold half of it in reserve and let's buy something uh, that, you know, fits that model. And the, you know, and I said, well, okay, what, what kind of income would you like to have? And when I, you know, he said, you know, about $150,000 a year out of it, I was like, okay. So I'm looking for something with the, you know, EBIT of, you know, three to 400. And he's like, why? I said 150. I said, yeah, but you're, you're, you're thinking take home something you could use and live on. And you got to like, we, we walked through there, there's taxes, there's expenses, um, you know, and he was digging through like, uh, biz by sell and some of those sites out there. And I was like, wait a second, you got to remember just because they say the numbers are a certain thing, there's going to be a lot of adjustments by the time. It's like, if we're going to look, if we're looking on there, almost double what we're looking for. And he said, why? I said, just most of the, and I'm not picking on brokers. Most of that number, let's just say it could be very inflated, right? Um, there's not very many of those deals where I haven't seen where we had to adjust something. And uh, I haven't like, and I've, and I've talked to hundreds of people uh, usually there's some adjustment need to be done. Uh, you know, I was, here's a great example. This might be in your book. <laughs> uh, sell, the seller actually t is carrying more than one job, right? So the owner is like, yeah, you know, I, I put my salary back in, I, you know, $100,000 a year. And I was like, cool, what do you do here? He says, well, I'm the head sales guy. I'm the head engineer and I'm the head, you know, which I'm all of none of those, right? So I'm thinking, you know, he gives, he lift out, and, and he's a repairman. This was the one I'm, I keep, I brought it up on the show before people have heard this one before. But this guy owned a machine shop and he was the head sales guy. He was kind of the HR guy because he hired and fired everybody. And there's about 30 people, 30 or 40 people in his shop, depending on the time of the year. He had seasonal workers come in and, and when he was busy, he had people that would come back that were semi retired. But uh, anyway, um, He'd have people come in. So at certain times of year, he'd have more people. And I said, well, cool. Uh, like, tell me about the staff. And now he ran through everybody and what everybody did. And I said, well, you got all that machinery out there and everything. Do you have a, do you just do you have a service? Like, do you have a company that comes in and service it? He goes, no, if something's broke, I go fix it. I'm like, okay, I don't know how to fix your machine. Like this, they're making machine. Uh, when I say machinery, they're, they're laving metal and stuff, right? That's a machine shop. Yeah, and machine, I was like, I don't know how to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I was like, well, are you a licensed electrician? Like this, that's three phase, you know, equipment. It's like, no, I've been doing this for 35 years or 40 years or whatever the number was. And I was like, so he had added about a hundred grand back into his, or him and his broker friend. It was a buddy of his. It's just became a broker. They'd added his salary back in. Right. <laughs> and what he, they should have done is tripled it because, you know, anybody else that hire, you know, goes in there, unless you've run in another machine shop for 25 years and you can go fix all that and carry those three hats you're replacing him with two, maybe three people. And that's if you're going to work there full time. Um, a lot of businesses that are sold or that are up for sale 
really have a very limited market because they need to be acquired by somebody who has that set of skills. Um, I, people will ask me sometimes, what's the market like for small businesses? And well, back in my brokerage days, I would always tell them it's great, right? Because I was in the business of selling business. Oh, the market's great. But after a while, I realized, you know what? There's no such thing. Like there's there's a market for four-door used cars and there's a market for three-bedroom homes in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because you've got many of these homes and many buyers, many sellers. Uh, same thing with the cars. But when it comes to businesses, with the exception of certain categories, like maybe convenience stores or gas stations, many businesses are very unique. So it's more like the market for artwork, where you've got these individual things where you know, this is a really great business, but only for someone with 20 years experience in machining, right? To you use your example, right? Right. Um, but, you know, with respect to the cash flow and stuff, there's there's two things. Number one, I don't know if this is in my book or not, but um, I always find it instructive when I'm talking with a new seller or, or coaching a buyer, that one of the questions you should ask in meeting with a business seller is what their spouse does. So, and, and ideally what you're looking for is a stay-at-home spouse, because if they're married to an attorney or a surgeon, that can cover a lot of, a lot of problems can be covered with a high income earning spouse, right? And so I've, I've met people before who've run quote unquote businesses for decades that never made any money because their spouse was shouldering all the burden of the expenses at home. So that's, that's one thing you want to have an idea if that's even possible, right? Um, and, and the, the other thing is that even those smaller businesses that you mentioned, you know, the, the business with an SDE of 75 grand and people say, well, who would, who would buy that in my books? That's not really a business. It's more like a job, right? Because you're going to, you're going to buy that and you're going to earn an income, but not to discourage people who have a business like that. There's actually a market of people who want to buy jobs. Um, and usually because they face some kind of barrier to employment. So often you'll think about a, a business that doesn't have a whole lot of profitability, but maybe this is the business that a new immigrant to the country buys. They might have skills or a certain professional expertise, but they can't transfer it into the new country because of, you know, some kind of regulation or licensing or something of that nature. And so that person needs to get an income. And so they're going to buy what they can afford. And maybe that's going to be a job. But it can also be somebody who has some other limitation in the labor market. So if you think about somebody who, you know, didn't go to college and they didn't get a degree and they're kind of stuck in a certain level of employment income, that person might also be tempted by that $75,000 STE business because it represents a real opportunity for them to grow their, their earnings um, in a way that nobody can say, no, you can't because you don't have this you know, degree from university or something like that. And, you know, another comment that you made there, uh, Ron, about the owner being disengaged and kind of sleepy. That's the other thing about businesses that um, maybe have these lower SDEs. If it's making money and it has problems, to me, that's an opportunity, especially if the buyer knows how to address those problems. So if you're familiar with a certain industry, if you've worked in an industry and you see one that has a, a lower SDE than what you would like, but you see that there's a sleepy owner at the switch, that's an opportunity for you to buy based on what it's doing today and then push it into a higher gear, like get it moving, do the things that are required. 
all kinds of businesses out there that, to your point about pest control, you know, they're not on LinkedIn, they're not online, but they are in the yellow pages. Well, that could be the opportunity someone needs to get a good deal on business and then grow it significantly over a couple of years without the risk of a startup because you actually do have positive cash flow from the day you start. Yeah, I got it. And uh, there's so many of them out there. Like, let's talk about the size of the opportunity here. I don't know that, uh, you know, I know it just because I've done the research and I, and I follow a lot of people that talk about it. But I don't know that we necessarily talked about what is the scale of opportunity out there? How many businesses are there out there that, uh, you know, if you wanted to, even if you just wanted to buy another job, you're, you, you're a pest control tech at somebody else's company and, you, you know, you've been doing it for 10 years and you'd like a raise, he won't give you a raise, you know, you got some money saved up. You know, what's the opportunity out there? Are there, you know, I kind of know the answer, but I want to hear your opinion of this. Are there plenty of businesses out there for sale? <laughs> well, well, here's, here's, I, I love, I love this question. Good question, Rock, because people will, you know, name statistics and try to put numbers on this. But the truth is it's impossible to calculate. And, and, and here's why, um, you know, in the U S for example, most small business deals are done as asset sales, but over at the government office, they're recording, you know, the creation of an LLC, for example, and other people are winding up LLCs. So the government doesn't actually record it necessarily as a business being sold. They record the creation of a business and the closing of the closure of a business. So th that shows up in a different kind of set of statistics. And when you're talking about the sale of shares of a business, there might be a government filing where the directors of that corporation are changing, but they may not necessarily be recording that as a sale of a business. The IRS might have a better idea because there's forms related to purchase and sale, but are they reconciling that with any other bits of data or you know, what, what transparency is there? And do you consider it you know, the sale of a business when one big corporation folds uh, an operating division into another one, because that's going to show up in those statistics too, right? And so there's all of this opacity in the market, which is the opposite of transparency. There's just all this stuff going on that confuses and befuddles what is actually happening and people don't know. There are some statistics out there that I believe anecdotally do hold ground. Number one, 80% of businesses that are put up, quote unquote, for sale, never sell. So these are businesses that end up on these marketplaces that we mentioned. They're never going to sell because they're terrible opportunities and no one's ever going to do them, right? And then a lot of the business, I personally believe that 80% of businesses that change hands never end up in the broker's hands. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're an opportunity for you because that also encompasses one generation transferring a business to another. So if a business changes within a family's hands, it's unlikely you're going to get yourself in the middle of that deal, right? And so we don't know. It's also going to vary greatly depending on where you happen to be. What's blowing me away is the number of 60 people age 60 plus who I'm working with who are selling their business in the North and they're entering the market to buy a business in the South because they know business, they like to own a business, they know the benefits of owning a business, but they want to quote unquote semi-retire. And they believe that doing, you know, acquiring a business in the Sunbelt state is going to be the way that they're going to do that. So that flies in the face of a lot of the statistics we see about the gray tsunami of people retiring. Retirement looks different for entrepreneurs than it does for everyone else. A lot of the academics who are writing these books and putting out these pieces operate under some flawed assumptions. Number one being that people retire at 65. 
Oh, if, yeah. you're, if you're a business owner and you get to control your every day and you get to decide what you do and how you do it and you enjoy owning a business, um, you know, I've helped people in their 80s sell. They didn't retire at 65. They kept going until they didn't have a choice anymore. They knew that they were becoming uh, limited in their capacity, whether mental or physical. They just they didn't want to be responsible anymore. Um, and, and then there are the other reasons that people exit. I always, I always say there's five big reasons why people get out of the business. There's the biggest one is boredom, fatigue, and burnout. That happens to people in their 40s, you know, just as easily as it can happen to someone in their 60s. So that's number one. Then there's divorce, poor health, the need to relocate, and uh, retirement. Well, retirement's the only one of those five people plan for. The other four happen to us. They're just the things that happen in life. And so this is why I say to people, don't be prejudiced. You know, some people will say, well, I'm going to look up a business. I'm going to do some research. I'm going to try to find the owner on LinkedIn and look for gray hair. I'm 46. I have gray hair. Um, but the gray-haired owner isn't necessarily the only seller out there. You can have people who um, increasingly, as uh, you know, back when I was a kid, uh, women were entering the workforce in a bigger way than ever before. And today we have married couples where uh, men and women are both income earners in the household. One of them could be an entrepreneur that owns a business, but they could be married to someone who's employed or has some kind of career where they actually earn much more. And so if someone is a business owner and they're married to a military officer and that military officer gets transferred, guess what? Business is going up for sale regardless of the owner's age because the couple wants to stay together, right? And they're going to follow the higher income earning career and move to that new place. So there's all of these different circumstances in the marketplace that mean that it's harder than ever to recognize <clears throat> where the opportunity is or what the opportunity is. So what I actually counsel people to do, Ron, is not to look at the market or the externalities or where they are, but to start within. So what do I know? What am I an expert in? Where can I deliver value to a business? Now, now that I've written that stuff down and I have an idea, <clears throat> what does the business look like that I can help? And what is my end goal state? Where do I want to end up in 20 years? And let's try to look for a business that I can improve that will help be the vehicle to take me to that end role state that I want to be at at the end of my career. And now we can start to say, well, are we going to define that by industry or size or the type of business? These are all the things that we're going to add to our wish list. And I, I talk about business wish lists not by being, I want to own a machine shop in upstate New York, but rather I want to own a business with you know, this many employees that has this kind of cash flow where we are a cash business or we have a small number of B2B clients who pay us on 30 days, right? Or we have a high investment in capital assets or we have a high investment in intellectual property. And so you create a, a list of characteristics of the different traits that a business might have. And then you go looking for businesses that fit that fit that mold and you can be surprised at the kinds of businesses you find because it could be in industries that you weren't really aware of before and one of the things i've learned over the years is that it's the opportunities in business as far as having a good profitable business are often far from the spotlight and that's the kind of example that i'm talking about is that you know everybody sees the ford dealer 
for the McDonald's franchisee because they're big, they do a lot of marketing, everyone's aware. And if you just see just how busy that McDonald's is, pretty soon Burger King's gonna open up next door, right? And that's that high visibility is what invites competition. And so one of the things I've come to learn is that you look for things that aren't necessarily so apparent uh, amongst people in the marketplace. I like that. Uh, I stumble across something like that because, you know, I've, there's certain, I, I built my criteria kind of like you were talking about. I know I want 10 or more employees. I want the, uh, you know, revenue to be over a million. Uh, particularly right now, I'm searching for revenue above 5 million just because uh, for 10 or more employees. And um, I love the recurring revenue model. I love loyalty uh, models where the customers will only lend a customer. They're a customer for quite a long time. And of all things, uh, I start really got, I'm intrigued lately and I'm meeting with somebody hopefully tomorrow. I'm having dental surgery later today. I may cancel my meeting and move it because uh, I may not feel good in the morning. But uh, anyway, um, he's a guy at a coffee roastery. Now his is cool because his family, his wife's family has the farm where the beans are grown. They import them. Now he travels around, brings other beans in too, but they have that. And then they roast them, but it's got the rever- you know, uh, recurring revenue, meaning that when people order from him, it, they're loyal to it. You know, if you think about uh, like certain, there's certain project uh, products like coffee, I would say golf, bass fishing, right? If you show somebody something new in that, they want to try it. And if they like it, they're kind of a customer for life. And, uh, and then if you, you add on things like coffee and some of the others, or golfing, if you've got a brand of golf ball you like and that you think you do well with it, you'll go to five shops to find that if the first two are out, right? Or first three or four are out. Same way with coffee. Uh, you've got a brand you like. And my dad, of all things, drank coffee, whether it was 30 degrees below outside, which is never here in Oklahoma. It was 10 degrees below outside, and it was 110 outside. He had a cup of black hot coffee in his hand and a, and a thermostat of it in the, in the truck. But it was always that, you know, nasty old Folger. So funny thing yeah. is I have a gag reflex to golf, to coffee, but I love the smell of it brewing. And I actually am very intrigued with the business and I'm meeting with people now to, to, to do it because it met all these other criteria. And if you'd have told me a year ago, I, I would be considering buying coffee roasteries uh, that have a subscription model. I'd say, yeah, I don't like coffee. You know, but it doesn't matter that, you know, I really got to my, my mind. It meets all the other criteria. It's got recurring revenue. If you get them big enough, they've got, you know, the reason I do 10 or more employees is I want, I don't want to buy another job. I really kind of want somebody else there to be the general manager and, and be able to run the day-to-day operations. So uh, that kind of kicks in when you have over 10 employees, at least from what I'm finding. Um, so what well, you mentioned, you're mentioning a trap there indirectly that, that I point out to people quite often is that, you know, you, you said, I wouldn't want to get into coffee because I don't like coffee. Well, the, the converse of that is actually a trap people get into. People will buy uh, like a franchise restaurant because they like eating there, right? And they'll, they'll confuse the product with the business. And, and they're very different. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've seen this with like, uh, in particular in the restaurant space, where people will enjoy going to a certain place. And so they, then they want to get into it or, you know, the classic, you know, guys who like to go to the sports bar decide they own, well, own their own sports bar kind of thing and or steakhouse or whatever it is. It's you really have to look at a business on the merits of it being a business. And, you know, there's all kinds of great things about the business you described, like coffee roast. Like if you've got people in subscription where you know you're shipping out, you know, so many bags of coffee every month and you're going to have so much revenue. 
Well, then you don't have to worry about your overhead. The next question is either how do we get more people on that program or what else can we sell to the people who already know, love, and trust us? And that could that could be, you know, other products or other things, or maybe it's like, hey, you know, if you really are into the gourmet roasted coffee, maybe you'd like to add, you know, a shipment of fresh pasta every month. I don't know. But <laughs> the, 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 the hardest thing in business is to get the customer, right? And once the customer is your customer and they know you and they trust you and they like you, it's going to be easier for them to agree to buy other different things from you. And that's, that's how you grow a business. Either sell more to the people that already are, are your customers or to find those new customers. And that's, that's where you're fighting, right? That's where you have to convert the Folgers customer over to the, to the gourmet roasted coffee customer. You know, it's interesting. People ask me, like, why don't you just get a business brokerage? And it's like the same reason I didn't do it in real estate is every customer I land, if I do a great job, it's a one time. I got to go find another one. Right. Yeah. There's a good there's a slight chance if the guy's under 40, he's going to get if you're selling because they're bored. And I do this when I'm talking about buying it. If I find out somebody's in their 30s or 40s and they're thinking about selling, I do everything I can to build a deeper rapport with them because I know Three or four years from now, after I, if I buy this one or help them, you know, some a lot of times people bring stuff to me I don't like, but I always point them to somebody like, you know what, I, I have this huge audience of people I know. I bet I know somebody that would be interested. So I point them, it, it, and that's one of the things I do is like, I, I may not be your buyer, but I probably know them. So let me, you know, let's, let me take a look and I'll, I'll go through it. And if I like it, we'll make an offer. If I don't, I'll, I'll, I'll put it through my network. And uh, so I don't, it's more of a referral type of thing than anything. But um, that, one and done thing just doesn't appeal to me. I'm, I'm sure it's great for a lot of people, but I want to build something that has great customer service, has a great product and people are begging to come back, right? They're, they're wanting to share it with their friends. One of the most brilliant things I've seen in the coffee industry is a guy I was chatting with when I first kind of looked at this, he had a YouTube video out and, uh, he, one of the things he does is during holiday seasons, he sends, he, you know, somebody's buying bags of coffee from him every holiday season where you might, anytime there might be guests, he knows their birthday, he knows anything. So every time there might be guests coming to that person's house, he sends sample packs to them and with a little letter in there. So he sends them their package and it sends them three or four samples. Hey, when your friends are over, if they love the coffee you serve, give them this to take home. And it has a, on the sample pack, it has a way for them to order more and his He's doing seven and a half million in subscriptions. He won't sell it to me. He's, <laughs> he's not ready to sell, but he, he was willing to you know chat with me for a little bit and everything. But I think that's brilliant. If you have a product that people love and are willing to share, uh, that's the kind of business I'm looking for right now. And uh, you know everything's different. Um, the thing that bugs me about business brokerages and even the real estate brokerage is you, you've got a customer, you, you did a great job. Sure, they're one for other people, but that customer is not probably coming back for even in real estate five, 10 years, most likely in business, maybe never, you know, maybe in five or 10 years when they get bored of the next thing they build. Oh, believe me, I, I ran headlong into that problem with my own brokerage. It was one of the reasons why I decided to get out. not only the cash flow roller coaster, but just the, the acquisition cycle. And, and in business brokerage, you're going through that acquisition cycle on both sides. You're going through that with business owners to get the inventory, and then you're going through it with the business buyers. I think there were, you know, for all the talk people have about roll-ups and buying multiple businesses and holding companies and all that kind of stuff, for all those deals I did, there was only one buyer that bought more than one business. And so that's a very tiny subset. So even on the buying side, every time I would have to develop a new buyer and 
And of course, then you're also sifting through all the people who are excitedly claiming they want to buy a business who never actually will pull the trigger, but the entrepreneurs, you know, we can call them. Um, it's hard to sort through all of those people to actually find the real legit buyer who's willing to, to actually do a deal. Um, yeah, so it's tough. I, I Listen, I, I, I hear you and I, I, I've got a video on my YouTube channel, My Life as a Business Broker, and I, it's got a lot of views, like over 100,000 views, and a lot of the comments and feedback I get are from people who've been considering that industry who say, yeah, you know what? I was only looking at the upside. I didn't really realize what the day-to-day -day was going to be like um, and how it would be. And a lot of people get into the industry. There are a lot of these sort of senior experienced business brokers who have been very successful in many markets around the world who, who, who do good at it. And they're, and they're experienced. They, and they do what a business broker is supposed to do. In my mind, what a business broker is supposed to do is set the expectations of the buyer and seller so that they'll recognize what a reasonable deal is and they'll move forward and do that deal. There's a lot of people who get into business brokerage who don't do a good job at that. Um, and they get into it without having the resources or any other kind of income to support them through those gap periods. One of the reasons why I was able to survive as long as I did as a broker was because I owned income properties. So I was collecting rents from apartment uh, apartments that I own. And, um, and that was able to give me some stability at home. The, um, so a lot of people get into it drawn in by those big commission percentages and, and you can call them big 10 or 12% being big. I don't actually, that's because they're comparing it to real estate agents, but I will draw this analogy, you know, a good business broker, a qualified business broker will do an evaluation on the business to share with the, with the owner, what it should be sold for. Then they'll go and find a buyer. And then the last step, which very few brokers do, but the really successful ones do do, is that they then work with the buyer to help them with their business plan and their cash flow forecast in order for them to get the financing. So if you want to draw the analogy with real estate, a good qualified business broker is doing the job of the real estate like the appraiser does and the realtor and the mortgage broker. And so those are like the three different skill sets that a good broker has to help accomplish the execution of a deal and and when you look at it in that way you're like yeah 10 or 12 percent does make sense because they're doing all of those different things so many people hop into business brokerage because they're thinking about that hundred thousand dollar check from the million dollar business and then they get 9 10 14 18 months in without having done a deal and that's when things get really real the you know their savings are gone they're getting pressure at home from their spouse. They've got bills to pay. They can't put money in their kid's college fund. Um, they're realizing if I'm going to carry on doing this full-time during business hours, I'm going to have to get a job, an off-hour job. Like I'm going to have to be working at a call center or delivering pizzas or something like that. And let's face it, for someone who's got the skill set and experience to be a good business broker, they probably have some kind of sales, financial, accounting background. Working full-time in a business broker job is then delivering pizzas on Saturday night is not going to satisfy most self, most people self-image requirements who fall into that category. And so this is why you get people coming in and out of the industry so much like a revolving door, because they think they have what it takes to make it. They get in there, they realize what it's really like, and you can do nothing wrong and still have every deal fall apart. Um, you know, I gave the examples earlier in the conversation. 
You've got the buyer and seller both have accountants and attorneys who have input on what's going to happen and can do things to upset the deal. The buyer's got, you know, the bankers, uh, the loan people that are, could have potentially upset the deal. Um, the sellers of a good profitable business, they actually profit from delay. So if the deal gets delayed three months, they get to own a profitable business for three months more. So they get to enjoy that. The buyers often have jobs or other businesses. So if a business, if a deal is delayed, the buyer is still getting money in some other way. The banker gets a paycheck from the bank. The accountants and attorneys have other clients, so they're still earning money even if the deal gets delayed. If a deal gets delayed, the only person who's really put out is the broker. And in all the deals I've ever worked on, there was only one that closed on the day that was put in the offer. Only one. Every other one got delayed, delayed, delayed. And that's the reality of being a broker is that even if you've got deals in your pipeline with certain closing dates, you cannot bank on them. It's all just like trying to grab sand and having it flow through your fingers. Awesome. David, I'm looking at the time, man. We're at 57 minutes in there. We have to like start wrapping this up. Uh, this is an hour long show. So let's, let's just jump right into if, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? So my blog site is at davidcbarnett.com and that's kind of like the central location of everything. And you can find easy links there to my YouTube channel, to courses that I offer, books that I have. All my books are on Amazon. I've got courses on buying businesses. I also have a group coaching program for people that want to work more closely with me. And um, mostly if you're just interested in deal making, if you're interested in business operations, deal making, et cetera, uh, go over to davidcbarnett.com and sign up for my email list. I send out an email every day and you also get notified of the new videos as they come out on YouTube. There's one of those every week at least. Um, and um, my mission is to help people avoid bad deals. And the easiest way to do that is through education. Um, and then when people do find a deal that they think might be a good deal, then I can help you with consulting services just to make sure that, that you're not fooling yourself. Awesome. And I appreciate it. I want to thank you for being here today. I, like I said, it's a little bit of a bonus item when I, when I get guys like you on the show that have been doing this for a while and I kind of learn through your YouTube channel and, and uh, it's, it's interesting. You feel like you know people before you actually do it because you've got, you've got so much content out there. It's like I get on here and it's like, you're just comfortable chatting with you because I've seen so much of your content. So I appreciate you being here, sharing that, you know, sharing your experience with the audience. And uh, I want to thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, Ron. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, that's the show. Hang out for a second when we're done, and I'm going to end the stream. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions. Uh, suggest a guest or even tell me about a business you have for sale, and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918 918- 641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer -peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T I E. PM.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.